Hi, this is Rick, and this is Burn After Reading. Before I get into the Beverly Lynn Smith murder case, let me address why I'm doing this series. If you've followed my episodes, you know I mainly cover issues that deal with misinformation on true crime cases. This, unfortunately, is another one. In May of 2022, Prime Video released a four-part docuseries called The Unsolved Murder of Beverly Lynn Smith. As I was watching episodes, I couldn't help but get that old familiar feeling that this was being constructed very similar to the Paradise Lost series and the Making a Murderer series. The film painted murderer suspect Alan Smith as the victim of police tunnel vision. The film portrayed law enforcement as people who would stop at nothing to get their man, be they right or wrong. In the trailer for the series, Al can be heard proclaiming that they took a decent man and they shredded him. However, if you follow this series and whether you believe in his innocence or guilt, I believe I can make a strong argument that Alan's claim may not necessarily be true. In fact, quite contrary. The film cherry-picked audio recordings from the undercover sting operation that would not paint the entire story. Over 300 hours of audio was played in court. The film series left out shocking statements made by Alan, both related and unrelated to Beverly. This will be something I will cover in a future episode. Unlike the docuseries I previously mentioned, Alan Smith would not be convicted. Why? Again, we'll get into that later. In addition to the series' slanted tone, they even got her middle name wrong. They spelt her middle name L-Y-N-N, when it is in fact L-Y-N. That's a mistake I'm not going to make. And this was a mistake that was brought to their attention, but never corrected. And it should have been. After the Prime Video release, podcasters and YouTubers would come about producing their own episodes of Beverly's Case, parroting just about everything the Prime Video series laid out instead of actually doing their own research. Despite Beverly's daughter Rebecca reaching out to these podcasters and YouTubers, she was ignored. Can't let family members of a murder victim get in the way of content, right? Some of these names who covered the case includes True Crime Guys, True Crime and Cocktails, True True Crime Squad, and Sherry Lynn Dale, who is, I believe, the most popular among them. They told their side of the story. Now, I'm going to tell you what they didn't. I'm going to tell you what changes everything you've heard or knew about this case. But to get there... We have to start from the beginning and work our way up to it. So without further ado, here's part one of the murder of Beverly Lynn Smith, the other side of the story. On the evening of December 9th, 1974, in small town Raglan, Ontario, a young woman's life was unjustly stolen from her, fatally shot in the back of the head in her very own home. That woman was Beverly Lynn Smith. She was only 22 years old. She was the wife of Doug, who worked the night shift at the General Motors plant in Oshawa. She was the mother of her only child, Rebecca, who was 10 months old at the time, and was in the house when the crime occurred. She was the daughter of Helen and Nelson. 
She was the sister of Wendy, Susan, and Barbara. Barbara was her identical twin who she shared a very deep bond with. Beverly was slender and petite. She had flowing red hair and freckles adorned her fair-skinned face, adding contrast along with her beautiful, dark green eyes. Those who knew or met Beverly considered her shy yet sunny. Beverly was very quick-witted. She was a very talented artist and could draw someone's portrait so well you would think it was a photograph rather than a sketch. She was also crafty and could sew. She made clothes, be it her very own wedding dress or clothes for her sister Wendy because she didn't have anything to wear for school in the ninth grade. She also liked antiquing. Beverly was a stay-at-home mom at the time but she previously worked a government office job in Oshawa. She had to quit her job after discovering her husband was having a fling with their babysitter's best friend. Beverly had a gut feeling that something was going on, and when their babysitter asked if Bev could mail a letter for her, she decided to open it and read it, feeling she might get some answers. Beverly's instincts were correct. Uh, in the letter, the babysitter discussed having a fling with Doug's friend, Ashley Spicer, a married man who lived across the street from them. It also turned out that the letter discussed Doug's fling with the babysitter's best friend. And so, obviously, the babysitter's services were no longer required. But it left them without someone to watch Rebecca, hence why Beverly had to quit her job. Doug was ashamed about the cheating. He was on Valium at the time, and he went to a hospital for two weeks in order to kick the habit. He wanted to fix his marriage. He loved Beverly. He just made a stupid mistake. Due to being down to one income, Doug eventually got in a selling pot for supplemental money. Also worth mentioning, Beverly very much feared being home alone. I mean, yes, she had her daughter Rebecca with her, but I mean alone in the sense as the only adult in the house. Most of her life, she lived in a house full of people. So, now being home with only her daughter, she always kept the doors locked for her and Rebecca's safety. Sadly, this fear would turn into a terrible reality. On the day leading up to Beverly's murder, Beverly and Doug, along with baby Rebecca, went to an open house with the intent of buying the home. After that, they ran some errands and then ended back home where they put Rebecca down for a nap while taking one of their own while cuddling on the couch. Napping longer than expected, Rebecca woke up eventually alerting the parents. They realized they overslept and Doug had to rush to get ready for work. While he was getting ready, Beverly fried up some hot dogs for his work lunch. At around 5.30 p.m., Doug kissed both Beverly and Rebecca goodbye as he hopped in his car. Beverly held Rebecca as they stood by the window as Mom had her baby girl wave bye-bye to Dad. Doug pulled out and left for work so that he can be there by 6. Little did he know it would be the last time he would see his wife alive. After that, Beverly worked on some Christmas cards and talked on the phone with her mother, Helen, and then her twin sister, Barb. She was off the phone sometime around 7.10 to 7.15. 
It would later be revealed that Beverly wanted to spend some time with her mother and Barbara, but her mother had Christmas shopping to do, and Barbara was going on a date. At 8.30 p.m., Doug went on break to call Beverly, but his wife didn't answer. Doug then called the Spicers, who lived across the street from them. The Spicers were on vacation at the time, but Alan and Linda Smith, no relation to Doug and Beverly, were staying there. The Spicers offered their home to Alan and Linda after they were falling on hard times and Linda being pregnant. Doug and Rebecca knew Alan and Linda through the Spicers and weren't so much friends as they were mere acquaintances. Beverly would sometimes go over to the Spicers to play cards or to hang out when Doug was working, so it would be reasonable to believe that maybe Beverly was over there at the moment. Linda picked up the phone and Doug asked if Beverly was there. Linda said she was not. Doug thought it was a bit odd, but thought maybe she went over to her mother's house. Linda suggested that maybe Beverly was doing laundry. She recalled talking to her earlier in the day and that it was one of the tasks that needed to be done. And maybe that's why Beverly didn't hear the phone ringing. Linda volunteered to go across the street and knock on the door, but Doug said that she didn't have to do that and he would just call her back on his next break. But Linda insisted. She told Doug to stay on the line as she crossed the street to their home. According to Linda, when she made it over there, the door was locked and the lights were on. She knocked, but no one answered. As she started to make her way back, she caught a quick glance inside the kitchen window and noticed Beverly motionless on the floor with blood present originating from the back of the head. After noticing this, Linda quickly made her way back to her house, grabbed the phone, and told Doug he needed to get home right away because she thought Beverly had an accident. After this, Linda went to Al, her husband, and told him to go over to the house to check on Beverly. Again, according to Linda, when Al came back from across the street, he told Linda to call the ambulance and tell him he would have his Humane Society work van pulled into Beverly and Doug's driveway with his amber rooftop flashing lights on. The ambulance arrived and two men stepped out. Jim Ewan and Bill Cosburn was their names. Al was at the house waiting for them, and there would be some discrepancies on who actually kicked the door open to get inside. Al told one of the investigators later that night that he was the one to do it, but many years later he recanted that statement. Regardless of who kicked the door in, Al told the two ambulance attendants that there was a baby inside the home. There they found Beverly on the floor with a pool of blood next to her head. She had no vitals, but Jim Ewan attempted to revive her by performing CPR as Bill Cosburn checked around the house. Cosburn found a whimpering baby Rebecca in the living room. He scooped her up, put her inside his jacket, and eventually gave her to Linda Smith to look after. Doug finally made it home and attempted to rush inside, but was restrained by some people in the crowd. Investigators Doug aired and Richard Stanford of the Durham Police Detective Office were the first to arrive on scene. A source told me that they were intoxicated coming straight from a Christmas party. The investigators 
convince Doug to wait inside a cruiser to hopefully calm himself as they started investigating the crime scene. Investigators noticed during their inspection the damaged frame around the exterior door. Aird asked neighbor Al Smith about it, and he said he kicked it in to allow the ambulance attendants inside. Like I said earlier, Al would recant this. Why? Anyways, investigators initially thought Beverly was the victim of sexual assault due to her blouse being torn. They even collected hairs and other things, but investigators would later learn the torn blouse was due to one of the EMTs giving CPR to Beverly. Upon initial sight, they wouldn't know exactly what caused the fatal injury. They thought maybe someone caved her head in, possibly with a blunt instrument. Um... But it would later be known, later in the autopsy, the cause of injury was determined to come from a Kui model rifle. Aird found some pot in a bag in a kitchen in a drawer. He headed upstairs of the house, and in a spare bedroom, he discovered several baggies of pot estimated to be around, give or take, about a half pound inside a dresser drawer. More cops eventually arrived and did a canvas of the neighborhood. Oddly enough, no one heard any gunshots or anything out of the ordinary. After midnight, Beverly's twin sister Barb arrived on scene, looking for Rebecca. She found her at the Spicer's residence. She went inside. Linda was in the middle of changing Rebecca into a new outfit, while Al was pacing back and forth behind her. Barb, distraught and confused, asked Linda what happened. Linda stopped held up her hand towards Barbara, and told her she didn't want to talk about it. A weird statement. Wasn't the twin of Beverly entitled to some answers? Later, Aird would return to the station with Beverly's husband Doug and neighbor Al Smith. Both were questioned. Eventually, Nelson, the father of Beverly, arrived at the station and demanded they let Doug the hell out of there. Doug was allowed to leave and left with Nelson. Doug Smith was eventually ruled out as a suspect, as he had a solid alibi. Even being seen sprinting out of the plant as soon as he heard something happened to his wife. Later in the investigation, Aird brought up the pot found in the home. Doug offered up some information that would give a possible motive to the murders. Doug told Aird that he bought a pound of pot from a guy named Doug Daigle the Saturday before the murder. Beverly's husband, Doug, said that he would sell it by the ounce and had around 13 ounces left on the day of the murder. This was odd since Aird only discovered about 6 ounces in the house, meaning that the murderer had to have taken some, at least 7 ounces. But why would the murderer take only some of it? Why not all? This would be a lingering question. Investigators would go on to question Doug Smith's friends and associates. Um, some of those people, um, as I mentioned before, Doug Daigle was one, Rick Ostrom, Mark Kenny, and a guy named Jeff Zarek. Hopefully I'm saying his name right, but it's spelled C-Z-Y-R-U-K. Um, and with the exception of Doug Daigle, I'm not going to go into these people. Instead, I will defer to a book called The Coldest Case by Jeff Mitchell. There are things missing in the book, but he does cover these people. I just don't want to waste too much time going over dead ends. 
that's just what true pro, you know true crime podcasters do so that they can obloviate cases so they can make money off their you know audience and sponsorships I'm just not interested in that I'd rather get into the meat and potatoes of everything that's going to lead into what we're about to discuss anyways Beverly was an unlikely homicide victim she was a young mother with no known enemies there was no sign of a struggle in the house and it was well known that Beverly kept her doors locked especially when Doug was working the night shift there was no sign of forced entry other than the kicked in door which Al provided an explanation for, which indicated Beverly most likely opened the door for her killer. Someone she most likely knew and trusted enough to let in. In 1975, the case would go cold. It wouldn't be until 1987 when the case would become more active. I'm taking the following from Jeff Mitchell's book, The Coldest Case. I referred to it earlier, and while it doesn't cover everything, it's a good starting point if you want to learn the basics. I'll provide a link in the description page. Durham police detectives Tony Turner and Doug King went back into the case files. They looked at names who were considered good suspects at the time, and Doug Daigle's name stood out to the detectives. Thing is, Daigle had an alibi on the night of the murder. He was at home all night in his apartment with Georgina Cluse. Georgina confirmed Daigle was with her from 5.30 p.m. until midnight in a statement given in 1975. Daigle heard about the murder when a man named Doug Harper called and told him about it. In January 1988, the detectives re-interviewed Georgina. Her memory was fuzzy, and she couldn't recall the things that she said. I mean, after all, we're talking about memories from 1975 to 1988, so that's actually understandable. She didn't recall giving a statement to the police in 1975, nor did she remember signing a statement to an officer who wrote up the report. Perhaps just sloppy police work at the time, but Georgina assured Turner and King she wouldn't have lied to the police. She did question whether she stayed that long with Daigle due to her kids being home, but she did not deny being there. Cops also interviewed Doug Harper. He said it was a long time ago, but he didn't really have too many kind things to say about Doug Daigle. He thought he was a fuck-up who couldn't hold a job. He didn't recall ever calling him that night, uh, telling him about the murders. Again, memories can be fuzzy and misleading. We have cops interviewing a guy in 1988 about an event that took place in the final month of 1974. This, though, along with Georgina's new statement, Turner and King felt Daigle's alibi was in question. In February 1988, Turner and King also made efforts to find transcripts of the wiretaps that had been conducted in the mid-70s. They spoke to John Kay, by then an officer with the Durham police, who told Turner about an alarming statement cops heard when bugging Daigle's phone. The cops heard him say, I may have done it, I may have shot her, I might have been there, I don't know, I was stoned. However, despite... Kay's claim there were some issues. There was no transcript of the interception, nor did it exist on tape. The only reference to the statement was in a report by officers who claimed they heard it. Turner contacted Reg McIntyre and Reg Webster, the surveillance cops who said they overheard the statement. Both remembered the incident. The problem was that although the police had 
reproduced page upon page of intercepted conversations, the one Turner was most interested in didn't exist. There was no transcript of anyone uttering the words the surveillance cops said they heard. Turner settled for the next best thing, obtaining statements from the intelligence officers that could potentially be used in court. So, let's see what else was used to make a case against Daigle. Well, in February 1987, a woman called the Durham Police Crime Stoppers line to say that she heard from a source that Daigle was the killer. The source, according to the caller, knew what happened but was afraid to come forward. In March 1988, Turner and King interviewed a guy named Nick Popovics, who had lived at Daigle's place in Enniskillen for a time in the 70s. He told the cops Daigle freaked out at the time of the killing. Also in March of 1988, a guy named Edward Amy said that he was well acquainted with Daigle and the drug scene back in the 70s. He told Turner and King he also recalled people speculating about Daigle. Amy said when Doug was on dust, he would flip out, talk to spaceships, and lose complete control of himself. A woman who dated Daigle in the early 80s told police that he was a drug dealer who kept guns for protection and wasn't averse to sampling his own wares. When Doug was on PCP, he would flip right out and not remember things the next day. Daigle's own father told police that in 1974, he owned two 22 caliber Cooey rifles. He kept the guns at home, but admitted someone could have taken one without him noticing. Turner and King talked to another ex of Daigle's named Lee Eggleton. They hypnotized her, and she claimed Daigle told her about someone in Raglan who had ripped him off in a drug deal. In another interview, Eggleton, along with Kathy Shaw, told the police they'd heard Daigle make statements about killing someone. Eggleton said Daigle had talked about killing a young woman in the country. Shaw said he'd claimed already to have killed a woman who'd pissed him off and threatened he wouldn't be afraid to do the same to her. She also said that whenever talk of the murder came up at a party or gathering, Daigle would fall silent or try to change the subject. Police noticed some phone records of Daigle's apartment to Beverly's house, especially when Doug Smith was working at the GM plant. However, the specifics were not detailed in Jeff's book. Was that just in general or specifically the night of the murder? I honestly can't say. Turner and King would also interview Al and Linda Smith, the former neighbors who discovered Beverly that tragic night on December 9, 1974. They no longer lived in Raglan. They were now residents of Coburg. Al and Linda cast doubt on Doug Daigle being the one to have committed the crime, claiming that Oshawa cops had tunnel vision. The police went over Al and Linda's statements, and everything was fine up until the part where Al Smith kicked in the door for the ambulance attendants to go in. Al said that if he said that in his statement, he would like to retract it. A very odd statement. Then, after all of this, Al started to think that maybe Doug Daigle was capable of the murder. Here's another interesting tidbit. The cops asked if Al and Linda ever saw Daigle or his car at Beverly's house around the time of the murder. 
Al replied that, yes, he'd seen that car in Raglan a couple of times, but Linda wasn't so sure. At least she didn't think that Daigle had been at the house when Doug Smith wasn't at home. Al quickly refuted that Linda didn't know that for sure. Interesting how Al goes from Daigle couldn't have done it to perhaps maybe he did and goes as far as to counter Linda's memory. I mean, sure, it was a long time ago, but Al's persistence should be of note. After this, Turner and King became more convinced that they were on the right track and headed to British Columbia, where Doug Daigle was living. Daigle met with Turner and King at the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Detachment in Sunich on March 11th. They told him Georgina Cluse recanted her initial statement that she'd been with Daigle on the night of the murder. Of course, this would be misleading. She told them she couldn't remember giving that statement at the time. Still, the police were trying to discredit Daigle's alibi. They also told Daigle they had a witness who placed him at Doug and Beverly's house the day of the murder. Daigle maintained his innocence, but started doubting his own memory. If Georgina wasn't with him, then he must have been home alone. Still, Daigle would deny murdering Beverly. Daigle returned to take a polygraph test a few days later. The results would end up inconclusive. Turner took Daigle into an interrogation room, and that's when things would start to heat up. Turner came out with it and accused Doug Daigle of the murder of Beverly Lynn Smith. He told Daigle he was going to suffer hard times in prison, and he'd be a lifer. He told him to think about his poor mother, but despite what tactic Turner used, Daigle called his bluff. He told him he had nothing to do with it, he was mistaken, and he maintained his innocence from beginning to end. After the interrogation, Daigle was arrested and put in a jail cell with an undercover cop acting as a fellow cellmate. The cops were hoping Daigle would confide in him. But... Daigle didn't confess to anything. He was confused, however, by Georgina's retraction. Now, keep in mind, it wasn't a retraction, so the confusion had merit. He thought maybe she was bitter about how things turned out. He told his cellmate that he may have to go back to Ontario to deal with this murder beef, but he was absolutely sure he'd be exonerated. He also said his ex was telling cops things and making things up. As the undercover cop kept pushing the envelope to see if Daigle would slip up, Daigle informed him that his lawyer told him not to say anything and that the cells were wired to hear conversations. In the end, Turner called Crown Attorney John Scott back in the Durham region and informed him what he had on Doug Daigle. Scott's conclusion was that there wasn't anything sufficient, and Daigle was let go the next morning. No formal charges would ever be made against Daigle of the murder of Beverly Lynn Smith. Turner and King would continue to work their case against Daigle for the next several months, but there just wasn't anything. In 1990, Doug Smith thought 16-year-old Rebecca was old enough to know more about her mother's murder and took her to talk to a detective about it at the Durham Police Department. During this meeting, the detective noticed how much Rebecca looked like her mom and asked Doug if they could have Rebecca walk down Daigle Street to see if it would invoke a reaction. 
Doug was understandably dead set against it. If Daigle was Beverly's murderer, he would not put his daughter in any danger. The case against Doug Daigle would eventually come to a dead end. The case wouldn't get any significant traction again until the 2000s. In 2003, the Beverly Smith murder case would be assigned to Detective Leon Lynch, but it wouldn't be until 2005 that things started to gain traction. In March of that year, the Durham police were approached by the producers of a court TV program called Crime Files, Cold Case Edition, hosted by Sue Scambati. They were interested in featuring the case in one of their episodes, and police saw this as an opportunity to get new tips. Before Lynch would agree to the episode, he brought the subject up to Doug Smith. Doug said he was alright with it, but was concerned over the topic of drugs being the focal point. Lynch assured Doug that while questions about it would come up, it would not be the focus. While Doug being okay with it, Lynch agreed to be on the court TV show along with Beverly's twin sister Barbara and an Ontario Provincial Police criminal profiler. Some of the highlights included possible new evidence such as fingerprint on an ashtray, a hair fiber, and even hinted at DNA. Lynch said that the investigation would start from the beginning and follow the evidence to where it will take them. Everyone was a person of interest until excluded, except for Doug Smith. He had crossed him off the list. In fact, to quote Detective Leon Lynch, in our opinion, he's excluded from the investigation and has nothing to do with her death. Lynch hoped that someone would come forward who knew something substantial about the murder of Beverly. The criminal profiler's analysis was that Beverly was a low-risk victim, a robbery that may have ended with a murder that perhaps was not intended. The profiler recommended that the police focus on people who knew there was pot in the house. Detective Lynch sent a proposal for reopening the case to Durham homicide boss Rolf Klum. Klum looked over it, liked it, and sent the report on to his bosses. As Lynch waited for the green light, Doug Smith would make it known about his anxiousness for the police to find and arrest the murderer responsible for his wife's murder. He was stressed and worried about the effect it would have on his family, but in particular his daughter Rebecca. Doug would also have to relive everything again by giving the police another statement. He would also submit DNA, all things he complied with freely. I mean, reliving the loss of his wife yet again clearly took a lot out of him, as I would assume would be the case for most people. Barbara would also inquire about the investigation, quite often actually. Dissatisfied with the lack of progress, it led her to take part in an Toronto Sun story in December of 2006, vowing to shame the cops into action. Finally, in May of 2007, Lynch got the go-ahead to reinvestigate Beverly's murder. He was assigned a team of investigators. He told them they would have to contact and re-interview as many of the players from 1974 as possible, which wouldn't be an easy task as they were scattered all over the country, even in the U.S. like California. Durham police officers logged many hours and thousands of miles tracking down and re-interviewing people who had given statements previously. 
They looked into Daigle again, but Lynch was critical with the way Turner and King determined Daigle as a suspect. He thought they were incorrect in the way they, you know, interpreted Georgina Clue's failure to remember her 1975 statement to police as some sort of retraction. Lynch believed Daigle's alibi was ironclad and it exonerated him. Lynch did try to get Daigle to make another statement and take another polygraph test, but understandably, from what happened last time, Daigle declined. Mark Kenny was also re-interviewed in British Columbia. Mark didn't remember much that he told cops back in the 70s, and it didn't lead to anything fruitful. Summer of 2007, police interviewed Al Smith, who was now separated from Linda. Al, now an unemployed deadbeat, was now living in his daughter's basement in Coburg. Police recorded a statement from Al when they visited him, but something malfunctioned with the recording device, and they asked Al if he would come to the Durham police station for another statement, and he agreed. On July 11, 2007, Lynch and Detective Doug Parker picked up Al and drove him to Oshawa. They re-interviewed him, and after that, Lynch asked Al if he would take a polygraph test, and Al said sure. Turned out, Al Smith failed it. Detective Paul Nadeau, who conducted the test, told Al that there was no doubt in his mind that he shot Beverly. Well, this flustered Al. To summarize, Al told Paul not to make him the scapegoat after 30 years. He terminated the interview and said if they wanted to question him any further, he'll get a lawyer. Al, madder, madder than a wet hornet, went outside of the police station to, you know, smoke. Lynch approached Al and informed him that the failed test meant that it couldn't exclude him as a suspect, but he would still follow up on other possible leads. Still, he warned Al that the police would take a closer look at him and the version of events he told for decades. That afternoon, as Lynch and Parker were taking Al home, Al Paranoid expressed his concern over and over about being considered a person of interest in Beverly's murder. Lynch and Parker tried to put Al's mind at ease, but he clearly wasn't having it. His, his thoughts were racing. They stopped at a sub shop because Parker wanted to grab some food. As Lynch and Al waited in the car, Lynch asked if they could go to Raglan because maybe it would refresh Al's memory on the events that night. Al initially was against it, but eventually he agreed. Once they got there, they drove to what was once Beverly's home. Al looked around and pointed to the window. He claimed he saw Beverly's body the night she was murdered. They eventually dropped Al off at a convenience store where the deadbeat hoped to coax money out of the ATM for cigarettes. Al, still paranoid, asked Lynch and Parker to keep him updated on the investigation because he didn't want to keep chewing on his nails about it. Parker told Al not to worry, and if they needed to get a hold of him, they knew where to find him. Due to the failed polygraph test, a decision was made that evening to conduct surveillance on Al Smith. The Durham police stepped up their efforts to learn more about him and, as well, to observe him day to day. Applications for surveillance were made and granted, including wiretaps on the phone at the home of Al Smith's daughter with whom he lived. 
Lynch obtained records from the Peterborough facility to which Al had been admitted in 1991. They indicated that he had undergone extensive treatment and counseling for a number of issues, including a suspicion of schizophrenia. His primary concerns included anxiety and confusion, his recent and long-term memory rapport, and this is something I want you all to remember because this will be relevant in a future episode. By the time he became the subject of intense police scrutiny in 2007, Al was in his mid-50s, living on welfare, friendless, and without prospects. He was known to shuffle around the neighborhood, bumming smokes and panhandling for change. In other words, like I said before, he was a deadbeat loser. The realization that he was a suspect in the decades-old murder of Beverly Smith pressed him further into a funk. He rarely left the house. Police learned from listening to Al's daughter's phone conversation that he was suffering from intense anxiety. At one point, one of Al's sons called Linda and asked her, Mom, just answer me point blank. Did Dad kill this lady? Because he is freaking out about it. And Linda replied, To the best of my knowledge, I was the one who found Beverly. And that's all I know. Speaking of Linda, Al's ex-wife and now a devout Christian, things with her took an interesting turn. In August 2007, she took a polygraph test, during which she was asked similar questions those posed to Al. Well, guess what? She also failed. She was confronted by Paul Nadeau, the same officer with whom Al had squared off with earlier in the summer. He told her the test result indicated she was somehow involved in Beverly's murder. Well, naturally, Linda denied it. But Lynch now had two persons of interest instead of one. Like Al, Linda would be placed under surveillance. Let's go off course for a second. There's another interesting tidbit that I would like to speak about, especially for those who thought that poor Al was a victim of circumstance. He had two small blue dotted tattoos under his eye and by his cheek. They're also known as teardrops, a long-standing symbol among criminals who had committed murder. I mean, you could argue that those dots is for gang affiliation or his crazy life. But seeing that murder was committed across the street from him, and now he is a person of interest, I'm just going to go ahead and say that the first reason seems more logical. But wait. There's more about one of the blue dotted tattoos. In November of 2007, a detective went to Alberta to interview one of Al's ex-girlfriends. Al and his ex worked at a landscaping company. One day, Al left work and didn't return until the next morning. His ex noticed the mark on his face and asked what that was about. He said it was a tattoo, and when she asked why he got it, he told her, that's what you get when you've killed somebody. But let me guess, for all the detractors out there, he was just kidding, right? But hold on, there's more evidence. Enter Dave Maunder. Dave was a friend of Al's during the time of the murder. Dave, now living in Calgary, told police in an interview on November 16, 2007, that on the night of the murder, Al had gone to Bev's house looking to score some pot. 
Dave told the cops that between 6.30 and 7 p.m., he asked Al if he had any pot to sell him or if he could get him some. Al said he could try. Dave was sure of the time because he called Al before the start of his shift at the bar at 7. The next day, Dave heard about Beverly's murder and Al just so happened to have an ounce of pot waiting for Dave, but he declined it, instead getting about a half an ounce from someone else. However, it's important to point out that Dave did have some beef with Al. He told police how he'd help Al and his brother get set up in Alberta, and you want to know the things he got in return? Al had stolen a brand new pair of jeans, and Al's brother had accepted a sizable loan from him, then stiffed him. Decent guys. So is Dave telling the truth about his conversation with Al that night of the murder and the next day, or is Dave giving Al a receipt for getting ripped off? We'll get back to that, but keep in mind, Dave didn't have to tell the police about any of those issues. He offered that up freely. He made no bones about Al Smith being a lowlife. So, the Dave Maunder interview gave the police some interesting information. Al Smith denied going over to Beverly's and Doug's house for at least a month prior to the night he found Beverly on the kitchen floor through the window. In February 2008, police listened to a phone conversation between Al and Dave. Al insisted on his innocence. Dave did mention that Al tried to score him some pot that night. Al neither confirmed or denied that on the phone conversation. Instead, he continued on ranting and raving about his innocence and how the police were out to get him. However, this topic will be brought back up later in a different episode, so let's put a pin on it. Let's get back to Linda. Now, this next part is going to be one of the most frustrating things in this case, with the exception of Beverly's murder and the June 2014 pretrial ruling, which we'll cover in a later episode. Linda is nothing short of an enigma. The police pondered whether Linda covered up for Al or if she took part in the crime. Linda started to believe that some sort of block had suppressed her memory of what had happened that night. She talked extensively with her friend and fellow devout Christian Janet Hales, which she was also living with, and another woman in the community about this problem. Linda wondered if she suffered some sort of multi-personality disorder. So, does such a condition exist that could block the memory of a traumatic event? Well, yeah, actually. There is a condition called dissociative amnesia. It occurs when a person blocks out certain events often associated with stress or trauma, leaving the person unable to remember important personal information. There are three different types of patterns, localized, generalized, and fuge. It is possible Linda could have fell into the localized category. For example, a crime victim may have no memory of being robbed at gunpoint, but can recall details from the rest of the day. That's localized dissociative amnesia. Now, let me be clear. I am not saying, in fact, that's what she had. But it could explain why she doesn't remember details and how she suppressed this horrific memory for over 30 years. Keep in mind, Beverly's sister asked Linda what had happened that night, and instead of giving Beverly's sister rightful answers, she didn't want to talk about it. 
On January 28, 2008, Detective Lynch and Detective Jennings visited Linda Smith at her home in Huron Park. The detectives told Linda that her failed polygraph test meant she knew more than what she was saying. Linda stated she was confused and that she didn't murder anyone. But Lynch told Linda that the failed polygraph test didn't mean she had to be involved but had knowledge of something. Linda insisted she wasn't hiding anything. She said Al didn't go over to Beverly's until after he discovered her on the kitchen floor. Lynch told Linda he had evidence to the contrary. Linda, bewildered, said she didn't know that. Lynch re-explained to Linda that might be why she failed the polygraph test. She might know something but didn't want to get involved. Linda explained the same narrative of what her and Al did the day leading up to Beverly's murder. They went over her story, but nothing changed. Before the detectives left, Linda agreed to do another polygraph test. After the detectives left, Janet and Linda talked about what was going on. Linda questioned if Al was really with Linda the entire night due to the evidence they had. This would be a topic of discussion for the next several days, and with Janet pressing Linda on it. And at one point, Janet made it clear to Linda that if she ever found out she was lying about anything, she would be kicked out of the house. In the early months of 2008, the police interrogated Linda. She kept with the same story, but in February, things started to change. Linda pondered that if Al was innocent, then why was he freaking out so much? Linda asked Detective Jennings if she really thought Al did this, and Jennings acknowledged that yes, she did. Linda dreadfully contemplated, Wow, I've been living with a murderer all these years. Jennings told Linda it was time to tell them everything she knew, but Linda still persisted she didn't know anything. Jennings then told Linda about what Dave Maunder had told them. Linda was shocked, her mind completely blown by the new revelation. Later in the interrogation, Linda went from saying Al never left her side to, well, you know, maybe for a few minutes, and then, well, maybe up to an hour. Detective Lynch eventually joined the interview, and Linda started to give a new story of what she remembered that night. Linda remembered she was in the middle of making formula for her daughter when she heard a noise that sounded like backfire from a car. Despite the loud noise, she didn't inspect further as she was busy taking care of her baby. Lynch was skeptical of Linda's story, but he inquired further. Lynch asked where the noise came from, and Linda told him from across the street, specifically from Doug and Beverly's place. Linda didn't think it was important at the time because she thought it was just a car or truck going by. Lynch asked where Al was at the time, but Linda didn't know. As the interview went on, Linda questioned more things that she took for granted, such as Al's actions at night, such as, why did she have memory of him saying Beverly's injuries was much more than a bump on the head? Why would he rush to park his humane society van in Beverly's driveway? Why did the police question him so extensively on the night of the murder? Later, Lynch asked Linda if Dave Maunder called earlier and she agreed. She said he called Al to get some pot for him. Lynch asked where Al could have got it from and she assumed Doug from across the street. A few days later, Detective Lynch questioned Al again about the night Beverly was murdered. Al said he and Linda 
might have made a few trips back and forth between their house and Beverly's. Lynch responded that Linda didn't remember ever going over there with him, just when she went over to check on Beverly for her husband, Doug. Al's only retort was that people need to take another look at what they're doing. The police compiled what they considered compelling evidence, and on March 17, 2008, Al Smith was arrested in Coburg at the home of his daughter for second-degree murder of Beverly Smith. But that wouldn't be the only arrest. Linda was arrested for obstructing police. I wish I could say this case was close to coming to an end. I wish I could tell you that both were eventually taken to trial, convicted for their roles, but sadly, there's some unfortunate twists ahead. In the next episode, you're going to learn more as to why Al isn't the decent man he claimed, be it in the courtroom or outside of it. What wasn't told by Amazon Prime's docuseries and these true crime content creators will shock you, and it should make you rethink anything you know about this case. You're also going to learn more about how frustrating Linda is as a person as she continued to change her story, complicating this case. Is she confused? Is she mentally ill? Is she a liar? Or is it a mix of some or all of the above? You'll find that out in the next episode. Until next time.